The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome my weekly co-host who does most of the work for this show, Dr Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, the show title that Peter has for us today is The Real Story of Threats to Authors who dare to challenge the politically correct narrative. Uh, so, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Well, there's no doubt that we are involved in a war. It's a war uh, of perceptions. It's a war uh, of terminology. And there's enormous amount of lies that we must refuse to believe. Uh, there's uh, In the Bible, we, we are told about the uh, whole world being deceived by Satan. And uh, uh, we... Are, uh, we've got several passages in Revelation which says that Satan deceives the nations and one day an angel will be sent to bind Satan that he can deceive the nations no more. So obviously there's a lot of deception going on in the world today and uh, nations are being deceived and we can see that. And uh, it, it's shocking to hear about the uh, stabbing attack on an author, Salam Rushdie, um, for what he wrote, uh, you know, a 75-year-old man getting multiple stabbing wounds, and uh, uh, for having written something. And this, this in a free country where he's meant to be protected, and we've had the death threats against him since 1988, uh, since he published uh, this, uh, this book, um, The Satanic Verses, and uh, there should be freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of movement, uh, freedom of association. And nobody should be prosecuted for a thought crime or for something they thought or said or believed. And uh, this is, of course, what we warned about in George Orwell's 1984. Uh, George Orwell, who was at one point a policeman, and he was an editor, and he was involved in the propaganda department in Britain during the Second World War. And so he wrote in 1948 the book 1984, a futuristic book, where he, which now seems ominously prophetic, where he envisaged a future with an omnipresent government surveillance system and public manipulation through party politics and the cult of worshiping the party leader and historic revisionism, intimidation, social engineering, all of which no longer looks like a joke. Because Orwell predicted the manipulation of language into newspeak, 
with thought crimes punished by thought police. In fact, there could even be face crimes where just expression on your face indicates it may be skepticism about a government pronouncement. And so uh, you could be prosecuted not just for thought crime, but for a face crime. And the Ministry of Truth used lies and propaganda to distort all information and news, entertainment, education, arts, while the Ministry of Plenty controls rationing and ensures starvation, the Ministry of Peace ensures perpetual war, and the Ministry of Love tortures, terrifies, and crushes all dissent and resistance. And part of uh, George Orwell's warning of the futures, the Ministry of Love would orchestrate the two-minute hate and the hate week campaigns to distract and channel anger and frustration of masses towards a real or imagined enemy. And the Ministry of Truth would also vaporize or expunge from the public record opponents of the state which could not be debated or argued against. And these had become unpersons who had disappeared down the memory hole. Now, propaganda and intimidation, terrorism, oppression go together. The leftists gain control often through deception. They maintain control through oppression and intimidation, threats and violence. And we can see what's been going on in recent years. Every monument needs to be replaced. Every street name changed. History itself needs to be rewritten in order to accord with current policy of the ruling political party. As Karl Marx declared, the first battlefield is a rewriting of history. And George Orwell in his 1984 book shows that the suppression of free speech and the manipulation of language and the intimidation of general population is an essential part of any tyranny. So in the past to suppress dissent, the accusation of heresy or treason was sufficient. It could be burned at the stake or, or have your head chopped off, depending. And uh, today, hate speech is the modern equivalent to silencing free speech. So you merely have to accuse somebody of Islamophobia, racism, homophobia, bigotry, anti-Semitism. That's sufficient to silence opposition and prevent free and open discussion normally. And so this is where we are, where authors can get intimidated, threatened, for merely trying to communicate whether it's history or whether it's his opinions or uh, sometimes satire. And George Orwell's book, 1984, was in fact a, a satire, political satire, uh, particularly in his Animal Farm book. And uh, uh, you just think how much attack there is on freedom and perceptions and how we need to resist it. Well, I have my own experience with this because I've been a missionary for over 40 years and uh, serving the persecuted churches. I've ministered in 38 countries and been involved in eight wars and um, three revolutions as a missionary. So during the years, I've obviously witnessed a lot of persecution and some pretty bad things. So I've had to report on it. When I started reporting on the persecution of the church in Mozambique, communist persecution of Christians, uh, burning of churches, massacring of populations, burning of Bibles, and all the rest of it, I got a death threat letter. In fact, I got this letter from the Ministry of Justice, dead serious, on letter, Ministry of Justice, Department of Religious Affairs from Mozambique, from the communist Filimo government of Mozambique. And they, uh, on this letter, typed and signed on letter <coughs> from the Ministry of Justice, you come back to Mozambique, we'll kill you. Now, it so turned out that my Mozambique report, which documented huge amounts of uh, with dates, names, places, um, eyewitness testimony, the whole lot um, of, of what the Marxists had done, uh, including communist Zimbabwean troops and, uh, of course, the Filimo troops in Mozambique of the Communist Party. 
how they had burned churches, massacred populations, tortured people, and uh, scorched earth the population, creating a man-made famine, abused foreign aid. When I had this Mozambique report published, it was read into the congressional record by uh, Senator Jesse Helms in, in the United States of America, who was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, as a result, Mozambique lost foreign aid. And it was also translated in Norwegian, uh, communicated to the Norwegian Parliament. Norway also dropped the aid for communist Mozambique as a result of the Mozambique report, and so on. So as a result, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Department of, of Religious Affairs, sent me a death threat letter that if I came back to Mozambique, I would be killed, all because of what I'd written and documented in the Mozambique report, which was later reprinted as In the Killing Fields of Mozambique. So when I was captured in 1989, that was very intimidating because <laughs> I knew that um, I was in the hands of the very people who threatened to kill me for my views. And well, that's part of uh, one of the chapters in my Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book. Well, later on, as I began to work in Mozambique um, and Angola, and the wars ended, uh, as the Berlin Wall collapsed, the Iron Curtain collapsed, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Soviets pulled back their forces. And so... Uh, the wars in Mozambique and Angola came to an end, and the war in Southwest Africa came to an end, and uh, elections of one sort or another were held all over Southern Africa, including even in Zambia, where the Communist Party was removed. And uh, some friends of ours who'd been in the same prison I'd been in, in Zambia, came to power, which is another amazing story. But I then looked around for another war zone, because all the wars in Southern Africa suddenly dried up, miraculously, the moment the Soviet Union collapsed in the Berlin War and the Warsaw Pact countries collapsed. So I went up to Sudan and I hitchhiked into Sudan my first mission, took a few hundred Bibles in and discovered it was very bad there and started to document the persecution of the church in Sudan. Bombing of churches, burning of churches, scorched earth and all the rest of it. And uh, as a result of my work in, in Sudan, I got uh, death threats actually uh, from the government of Sudan. And so when I published my Faith Under Fire in Sudan book, I received a death threat from the official government of Sudan, Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. So on the government of Sudan, Ministry of Foreign Affairs website, they posted an article, Why Churches in Sudan Are Not Bombed, which bluntly stated that Peter Hammond should expect to be bombed every time he comes to Sudan. Peter Hammond should expect to be shot on sight. They even gave the reason, because his writings make him an enemy of the state. So... I actually had Muslims turn up at the gates of our mission headquarters in Cape Town complaining about my Muslim evangelism workshop training manual and also uh, my book, Faith Under Fine Sudan. And uh, it, it was uh, pretty serious. So from a government, you can imagine, and uh, the local police were very concerned. They want me to go into witness protection program, which I said, I can't do that. I've, I've got a public ministry. Well, later on in 2005, I produced the book, Slavery, Terrorism and Islam, historical roots and contemporary threat, where uh, with all of the continued attention on slavery, which ended over 200 years ago um, in the West, uh, how that was um, something why Westerners need to continually be guilt manipulated to this day. Well, I saw the need to uh, produce a book documenting the role of Islam throughout the last 14 centuries and today. So slavery, terrorism, Islam, the historical roots and contemporary threat that book went through three printings uh, each time. Each edition was double the size of the previous one until the third edition was three times the size of the original edition. And uh, 
and these were sold out very quickly. One of my best-selling books of of, um, of my writing career, and uh, the the slavery, terrorism, Islam books have been much in demand. We we can never really seem to keep pace with it, which is good. Well, I started to get death threats as a result of producing this historical book, documenting historically uh, the uh, Muslim involvement in, in slavery and slave trade, which is actually very significant. Uh, it in fact dwarfed the Atlantic slave trade, uh, and it's far more serious than than any slave trade that took place in North America. The North African, Sahara, East African, Indian Ocean slave trade of the Muslims was so huge, um, it affected the lives of well over 180 million people over 14 centuries, uh, were, were killed or enslaved as a direct result of the Islamic slave trade there, which massively dwarfed the 11 million who crossed the Atlantic in the Atlantic slave trade. In fact, in the Atlantic slave trade, uh, which lasted three centuries, most of the slaves ended up in South and Central America. Only 4.4% of all the slaves across the Atlantic end up in North America because, in fact, uh, the, the need in North America was very small compared to the other places. The, most of the slaves end up in French, Portuguese, and Spanish uh, possessions. Uh, such as Haiti and uh, in uh, Brazil, and uh, you could just see the huge amounts of abuse there. The slave trade of crossing the Atlantic, something in the region of 5% of those crossing the Atlantic would die en route, whereas the Muslim slave trade crossing the Sahara Desert and East Africa and up the Indian Ocean, something in the region of 80%, sometimes up to 90%, and even 95% in the case of Sahara, died en route, were either killed during the raids or, or died or were killed um, for being stragglers en route to the slave marketplace. So uh, the, the actual uh, death rate was reversed when it came to uh, those uh, in the Muslim slave trade to the Middle East versus those in, in Africa. And what was also striking was how most of the slaves that went to the Americas went there for agricultural work, to work on the cotton fields and so on. And... Uh, uh, most of them were allowed to marry and had children and families and, and so on. Whereas the slaves that crossed into the Muslim world uh, over the 14th centuries, most of them were needed for either slave armies or for sexual exploitation in harems and for prostitution and so on. And uh, in fact, while those who went to the Americas were allowed to have children and families, those who went to the Middle East were normally not allowed to have children. And uh, there was a policy of killing any babies born uh, to slave women drowning them uh, or having them their throats slit so as to maintain Arab numerical supremacy, which is also believed to be more economically viable uh, to recruit more slaves, to, to capture more slaves and to have some of these slaves distracted with raising the next generation. So one can see immediately that the Islamic slave trade was vastly worse on every level, uh, both in terms of numbers, uh, treatment um, and uh, uh, certainly in terms of the genocidal wiping out of the next generation. So that today you have many descendants of the slaves born in North America and even South and Central America, but you don't have many, if any, descendants of the slaves who went to the Middle East as a result. So all these things are documented and, and brought into facts. And of course, the 300 years of European involvement in the slave trade ended over 200 years ago, thanks to the work of evangelicals like William Wilberforce and David Livingston. However, uh, the Muslim slave trade, which has lasted 1,400 years, continues to this day. So anyway, many of these facts are put in, and as a result, 
uh, <laughs> just a couple of months later, uh, our uh, missionary uh, at a University of Pretoria Mission Week was surrounded by a mob of Muslim students from the University of Pretoria demanding that our mission display be removed. Now, we had been officially invited by the University Missions Committee to take part in the Go Love the Nations Mission Week and had taken part in them for over a decade. So within two hours of setting up the Frontline Fellowship Missions Table display and uh, at, at the University of Pretoria, we began to receive hostile reactions from Muslim students some of whom swore and cursed at a missionary, threatened his life. Soon a mob of 20 Muslim students were surrounding the frontline mission display, shouting and swearing at him. Some tore up or burned our frontline literature. And a Muslim dean of the Student Representative Council then fetched the dean of students to inform us that we had to dismantle our missions display and return late that afternoon when things had calmed down. So instead of dealing with the rioting students, they told us to leave. The victims were to leave. That afternoon, we were informed by the Missions Committee of Pretoria University we would not be allowed to come back again and not be allowed to set up again. In fact, we haven't been invited back since 2005, even though we'd been regular guests there for decades before. And it was mentioned that our frontline fellowship newsletters were not acceptable because they reported on activities and teachings of Muslims and evangelism amongst Muslims, so it wasn't welcome at a missions conference. Well, considering Islam the largest mission field on earth from a Christian perspective, that seems a bit bizarre. Well, on that same day, a mission in Cape Town started to receive a number of hostile phone calls from Muslims, and I uh, took some of those calls myself. Two phone calls that I personally dealt with, with people who identified themselves as Muslim students of University of Pretoria. The first was from a Muslim woman who was quite abusive and emotional and swearing and threatening me. When I asked for any specific factual inaccuracies in our publications, she preferred to curse me and threaten retribution for having insulted the Prophet Muhammad. How dare we come to what she termed as our university, not that I was aware that Muslims had built the University of Pretoria. And when I asked what university that was, she said, Pretoria University, our university. I asked, our university is not meant to be a place of free speech. Her answer was clear. She believed that freedom of speech should not be for Christians, it should only be for Muslims. When asked if she as a woman would be free to drive a motor car in Saudi Arabia, or whether she'd have the vote in Saudi Arabia, she became particularly abusive and, and emotional and asked, what the hell does that have to do with you? Saudi Arabia is our country. It's none of your business what we do in our country. So I asked, well, how can Pretoria University be her university and Saudi Arabia be her home at the same time? Well, that's when she slammed the phone down. Facts can ruin a narrative. The second caller was more controlled, but threatened serious consequences and hellfire for having insulted the Prophet Muhammad. Well, I made clear that if there was any factual errors in my publication, I would be keen to rectify it. We didn't identify any specific inaccuracies in our article or in the book, but only that it was insulting to the Prophet Muhammad. And he defended the fact there were no churches or missionaries allowed in Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country. So I asked, how then could he object to a Christian mission having a display at a Christian Missions Week at the University of Pretoria, which was built by Christians? He reiterated, Pretoria is now our university and Christians are not welcome there. Well, these abusive phone calls coming along with a death threat fatwa, which I received the previous week, and a Muslim mob intimidating our missionary at the Students' Missions Committee to expel a mission, of, <laughs> a mission to Muslims from the University Missions Week 
this all had ominous implications because the death threat that I received by fax informed me that as director of Frontline Fellowship, I was worthy of death, not by stoning, but to be cut to pieces, piece by piece, and your remains given to dogs and hyenas while you are alive and while your eyes can see it. The letter came to office by fax and said that we should be eliminated from the face of the earth. You have the audacity to insult two billion adherents of this mighty and great religion, the perfect and final religion of the Almighty. If you and your concoction of lies think you can ridicule the last and final prophet of God, namely the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, without retribution from just one person of the two billion plus Muslim men and women on the face of the earth, think again. The fatwa will definitely come to you. You will meet your real maker. You are worthy of death. Go burn in hell. Long live Islam. Amandla Islam. Now, I've edited out the coarse language, the foul language, the swear words from that letter, but it, it was bad. Well, that wasn't the first death threat I'd received, and I did take it to our police who took it very seriously. And, uh, in fact, the police inspector who was investigating this uh, got the culprit concerned, confiscated the computer from which the fax was sent, and uh, fingerprints, everything identified, and then started to get threatened by the lawyer representing this Muslim, who was a, uh, as, as the, the investigator, um, the inspector described it, a real player, not the kind of person who'd pull a bullet, but somebody who had um, a hand in even the 7-7 bombings in London, which had just occurred shortly before 7-7 uh, in 2005 in, in London. And so... Um, the police inspector said, you are threatening me. I will have you disbarred. This is sedition. And uh, nevertheless, the prosecutor lost the files. And uh, even though I was intimidated to back down, I didn't. I insisted on in going ahead with the case. And the police continued to go ahead with the case. And uh, yet the prosecutor lost the file. Now, all of this taken along with bombings and assassinations by Muslim extremists worldwide, and even the stabbing of Salam Rushdie uh, this last week, it hardly supports the contention of those who say that Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance. How can you prove your religion of peace and tolerance by threatening and then violently attacking people? That a Christian missions week at a university could be intimidated by some radical students is particularly disturbing. Now, universities are meant to be place of critical investigation, iron sharpening iron, and freedom of speech is an essential foundation for any serious education. A university should be a free marketplace of ideas where dissent and disagreements, debate and open discussion without threats and interference, without interfering with the freedom of others, is essential to discover the truth which will set us free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So considering that the University of Pretoria Missions Week was the biggest Christian activity on the campus of that university, that threats by Muslim students should intimidate a missions committee to exclude a mission to Muslims has far-reaching implications. In fact, we weren't the only mission to Muslims expelled from that university that year. In fact, every mission to Muslims was not invited back to University of Pretoria afterwards. So how are we meant to do missions if we're not allowed to have missions to Muslims, which is about one-fifth of the world's land surface and uh, the world's population? So I personally phoned the chairman of the missions committee and she informed me the missions committee had no choice but to withdraw the invitations for our mission representatives because we were scared for his life. We did not want to have trouble. We can't provide 24-hour security. We don't want to have a riot on campus. Your exhibitor was in danger. He was threatened. So I asked, 
has our missionary threatened anyone? No, he was the one being threatened, I was told. So asked, why is it that the victim of this threat of violence is the one being excluded instead of those radical students who were doing the threatening? Well, then I was told that our missions literature was insensitive, that the University of Pretoria is multiracial, multicultural university, which needed to be sensitive to the beliefs of other students. Incredibly, she declared that any Christian student would have reacted in just the same way had there been similar literature written against their beliefs, <laughs> our beliefs. To this, I to strenuously disagree. The Islamic Propagation Center International, based in Durban, has printed multiplied millions of copies of offensive, blasphemous, anti-Christian publications like Crucifixion or Crucifixion, The God Who Never Was, and much of which has been distributed on University of Pretoria campus. So despite a relentless barrage of anti-Christian publications, articles, and films, I was not aware of a single case of Christians threatening violence or carrying out bombings or assassinations in retaliation to anti-Christian blasphemy. The most blasphemous form ever produced, The Last Temptation of Christ, received much protest. But again, I wasn't aware of any violence perpetrated by Christians against universal pictures as a result. In fact, I had even debated against this and protested against The Last Temptation of Christ screening uh, on the University of Witt's campus. And nobody was injured and no violence was done. The only violence threatened was threatened against us for protesting against the blasphemous form. So at this, the chairperson agreed that she didn't actually know of any cases where Christians had actually threatened violence, but all she meant was it was understandable that Muslims would be offended by our article. So I pointed out that the End of Islam article, which was in one of our newsletters on table, was only a reaction to relentless Islamic propaganda against Christianity. An article and a book on which it's based, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat, seeks to objectively and factually answer the relentless propaganda of Muslim publications. At this, I was informed that she and the missions committee totally agree with Frontline Fellowship with your work and what you write. It was not that there was anything inaccurate that they were objecting to, but merely the tone. It was too hard, too controversial. I'd like to point out that much of the Bible is also controversial, very controversial and offensive to many. But we have to love our Muslim neighbors enough to tell them the truth. We love Muslims. We want them to be converted. We want them to come to Christ. We want them to hear the truth. We aren't against the Muslim people. We against false religion. We are trying to teach the truth. Basic to any missions conference is the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to Father but by me, Jesus said. All other religions are false. All outside of Christ are lost. And all need the redemption of Christ. Muslims are the largest group of unreached people in the world. To point out to them that there's no atonement in Islam, there's no forgiveness of sins in Islam, that they need to turn repentance and turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. This may be offensive to Muslims, but it is the truth. That's the way of salvation. And it's also the reason why we have missions and missions conferences. If a group of non-Christians are allowed to interfere with our freedom of religion and intimidate organizers of a mission, event to exclude a mission to Muslims, where's this going to end? If every mission to Muslims is excluded from missions weeks, then can the Hindus not insist that missions to Hindus be similarly excluded? And if those who offend Muslims or any other group can be excluded, are missions weeks only to consist of those organizations which don't offend anyone? It's not possible to fulfill the Great Commission without offending somebody. Is it justice when the victims of violent threats are excluded instead of those guilty of making the violent threats? 
are the victims always to blame? How effective are universities going to be if they can tolerate such threats to freedom of speech? How effective will our missions weeks be if they allow radical militants to interfere with which missions may participate? Is this part of a larger campaign to sideline Christianity off university campuses? I've been a missionary for 40 years, and for much of the time, most of the time, I've specialized in Islam. And by God's grace, I've had the privilege of smuggling some of the largest shipments of Bibles ever smuggled into an official Islamic country. 9,700 Bibles and New Testaments on one particular flight in a DC-3 at Dakota behind enemy lines. The Frontline Fellowship Mission Base in Sudan that we've established was bombed 10 times by the Sudan Air Force in an 18-month period. I've come under artillery and rocket attack and aerial bombardments while preaching in churches in Sudan. We expect opposition from radical militants. What we do not expect is that Christians who've invited us to Missions Week would bow so quickly to intimidation and threats of those people that we should be committed to reaching with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And and so over the years, I've been, I've been attacked. I've been uh, beaten by mobs. I've been hit and kicked and I've been bombed and I've been ambushed. And... Uh, I've experienced uh, imprisonment. Um, I've experienced all kinds of mistreatment by uh, radicals uh, in different situations, um, even being picked up um, while I was just reading Bibles uh, in, in Russian, Russian New Testaments in the harbor in Maputo back in 1982. I was picked up by a Russian sailor who threw me into the harbor. And next thing, while I'm trying to swim in this oily pollution, litter-ridden, messy, muddy, dirty water, I suddenly heard the Bibles plopping around. <laughs> the other Russian sailors were throwing the Russian New Testaments into the water around me. I was trying to pick them up while getting to the side and finding some ladder that I could climb up and get out of that oily, messy harbor. And another time I was doing ministry to uh, a brothel in Durban, and uh, a Russian pimp came out and uh, was threatening one of our girls. And I stepped in front of the girl to, to protect her. And uh, this Russian picked me up over his head and threw me into the into the road. This was West Street, which is a one-way racetrack in the center of Durban. And cars were hooting, screeching, swerving to try and avoid me as I was rolling amidst the traffic there. Well, interesting enough, that Russian pimp who had uh, um, thrown me into the street uh, he was um, shot later that week uh, in the head, dead, by one of the Ukrainian girls that he had trafficked uh, there, uh, one of the victims of trafficking, and with his Tokarov pistol that was under the pillow. Um, so it didn't end very well for him. Uh, on another occasion, I was uh, doing evangelism outside a brothel in, in uh, Cape Town. Of course, these had been illegal in the old days. And the old Christian South Africa, but now under Nelson Mandela's South Africa, uh, they became very common as he paganized the country. And so I was preaching, we were singing hymns, just doing gospel literature outside a uh, brothel in, in Seapoint in Cape Town, when um, a pimp came out and threw a bucket of beer and wine and, well, viler liquids too, uh, over me from head to toe. And I, I was drenched with this vile, sick liquid. And uh, you can imagine coming home stinking like you'd been in a sewer. Um, and my wife was like, what is that smell? I said, I've just been at the brothel and uh, I certainly smelled like it. And uh, yes, so there is intolerance. <laughs> there is an attempt to silence people whose uh, messages are not politically correct. And there's, there's no doubt that words have been weaponized. I mean, 
Have you noticed how Marxists call their violent protests, their violent riots, they call protests? I mean, a protest by definition is peaceful. When there's violence and destruction of property, it's not a protest, it's a riot. They call a murder of babies choice or termination of pregnancy. They call perversion an alternative lifestyle. They call their hate speech politically correct. They call their racism diversity. They call their intolerance tolerance. They call their violence peace. They call their looting of flat screen TVs a protest. They label your free speech as hate speech and a thought crime. And um, it seems the only slavery that matters to the radical left is the slavery that ended over two centuries ago. But slavery today, ah, slavery in Red China, Mauritania, Saudi Arabia, that's irrelevant, not worthy of attention. It's interesting to note that the BLM co-founder, the Black Lives Matter, Baal, Lucifer, and Moloch, Burn, Loot, Murder, BLM co-founder, was convicted of human trafficking, which is slavery. Ferguson BLM leader Charles Wade was arrested for seven counts of human trafficking, including of underage girls. Isn't it interesting how hypocritical many of these people are? If you try to call attention to desperate plight of black Zimbabweans suffering under brutal red Marxist dictation, you may be accused of being a racist. And if you try to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, pre-born babies, and try to advocate the rights of life pre-born babies, you will be accused of being anti-choice. But pro-choice is a lie. Babies don't choose to die. Uh, you don't have the right to choose anything the left disapproves of. My body, my choice is what they shout when it came to abortion. However, if you chose not to wear a mandatory mask, you would be accused of being guilty of a hate crime. So apparently when it really is your body, you don't have a choice at all, such as do you want to take some experimental vaccine um, gene-altering uh, medical procedure or not? Uh, well, now my body, my choice doesn't apply. My body, my choice only applies when it's not your body, when it's actually a baby's body within you. Uh, now, there uh, you have a choice, but you don't have a choice when it comes to masks and vaccines, apparently. And anyone who disagrees with the radical revolutionary rhetoric will be accused of being a far-right extremist. And those making such judgmental generalization will be far-left radical extremists attempting to silence dissent by shouting incendiary slogans against us. All whites are racists. Well, that's a generalization, and it's racist generalization. But it's not normally recognized as such, nor is it even seen as judgmental. And broad-based black economic empowerment affirmative action racial quotas in the workplace and in sports is not often publicly recognized as racial discrimination, but it is. You see, to the left, nothing is their fault. Any criticism of their violent, intolerant racism is deemed and dismissed as racism. The radical left is no longer willing to discuss or debate the merits of any case using facts and logic. Generally, they choose to shout insults and ad hominem invectives in an aggressive attempt to stifle debate and silence alternative viewpoints. Everything's your fault, you see. And any attempt to respond to generalizations and condemnations with facts will be dismissed as racist or judgmental. So like spoiled brats, these radicals are resorting to temper tantrum tactics to intimidate and bully anyone into compliance to the ever increasingly irrational demands. Well, that's one side of the bargain, to sh shut up those who are not politically correct and are not agreeing with narrative. But the other side is to support or to basically keep quiet about or turn a blind eye to the radicals who will attack you physically, such as these extremists who stabbed this author, the 75-year-old Salam Rushdie, uh, for writing a book they didn't like. And you can just see this is a top-down, bottom-up uh, approach. So that you get 
deplatformed by big tech. You get defamed uh, by the left and you get threatened and maybe even attacked uh, by uh, some of their mob groups on the ground. This is how the present system today is seeking to work against those who uh, are speaking out, who are dealing with issues that are not politically correct. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, there's all sorts of um, directions that we can go uh, with that. Uh, Certainly, the persecution I've faced is nothing like what you've been through. Uh, My story is very simple. Um, I self-published a book in 2006, The Synagogue of Satan. Uh, That was subsequently published by Texmars in 2007. Uh, It made it on to... My version was just sold directly by me. I printed 500 copies, but Tex's version was available everywhere, directly from him. It was on Amazon. It had a barcode, which my version didn't have, which is why you can't get it on these platforms without a barcode. I was very idealistic in the 666 universal product code you're probably aware of peter not wanting to have that on the back of the book but unfortunately (laughs) if you want to get it distributed you have to so uh, on the original that i printed it says no 666 barcode here but the importance of getting the message out was you know had to be paramount and um it was doing rather well and on Friday's show with uh, Giuseppe and Scorpio, I actually read from a World Jewish Congress uh, open letter to Jeff Bezos of Amazon in October of 2013, so I'm not going to read it again. Um, Essentially, they wanted all sorts of books that they didn't like banned. They included only two images in the article, and both of them were of the Synagogue of Satan updated, expanded, and uncensored. Uh, screen prints from Amazon, but they never referred to the book's title or to me by name in either the article or the open letter to Jeff Bezos of Amazon that the article contained. <laughs> the interesting thing is, <laughs> I'm, uh, I was already familiar with the World Jewish Congress because in my original version of the Synagogue of Satan, as I say, Tex Miles published an entry from... 1978 reads as follows. In his book, The Jewish Paradox, published this year, former president of the World Jewish Congress, who held the post from 1948 to 1977, so nearly 30 years, his name was Nahum Goldman, and he stated the following in his book, The Jewish Paradox. I hardly exaggerate. Jewish life consists of two elements, extracting money and protesting. Well, certainly I've been at the end of the protesting aspect. But one thing that I discovered, and I was surprised that I did, I'm going to include this in the post for the show. Peter and I were having a a, a wonderful chat, as we do before most of our shows together. And Peter remembered the story. um, And I was surprised I found it. And I found it from um, JewishPress.com. And I went through Webcrawler. And the headline is... And this is from June the 7th of 2020. So this is right at the start of the Black Lives Matter protests. NYC BLM pogrom threat. Next stop is the Diamond District by David Israel. 
An African-American man in a camouflage face mask on Saturday afternoon told Fox News in a rally in New York City, Today I'm leading a demonstration from Barclays Centre at 6pm to City Hall and that's the first stop and we're hoping de Blasio and Kumo come out and talk to us and give the youth some direction. But if they don't, then next stop is the Diamond District and gasoline, thanks to Trump, is awfully cheap. So we're giving them a chance right now to do the right thing. For a a movement that accuses the Trump administration of dog whistling, this one was enough of a dog whistle to bring in a pack of Dobermans. The Diamond District is a single block on West 47th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, where the street is also officially named Diamond Jewelry Way. The district grew in importance when Nazi Germany invaded the Netherlands and Belgium, forcing thousands of Hasidic Jews in the diamond business to flee Amsterdam and Antwerp and settle in New York City. They have remained a dominant influence in the diamond district. When you threaten to burn down the diamond district, you signal your followers it is time to burn down the Jews. The dog whistle didn't pass by Fox News host Derek Sean, who reacted on live TV. Those are outrageous words to say. Basically that person was basically suggesting that they plan to go to the Diamond District which is basically which is run basically by Orthodox Jews here in New York City certainly hope that is not the case and we do not endorse in fact we condemn that type of language here on the Fox News channel. Someone saying that should be called out in, someone saying that certainly should be called out in terms of any type of potential threat of any sort that we have just heard live from someone who interviewed here on this channel. Sorry about the text here, I'm just reading as it is written. Fox News later reported that the man who made the anti-Semitic threat had been arrested. We noted last week that key African-American voices at the helm of Black Lives Matter have been tainted with an anti-Semitic past. Minister A.G. Keith Ellison, a long-time supporter and defender of Louis Farrakhan, Al Sharpton, the leader of the 1991 Crown Heights pogrom, and Jesse Jackson exposed in the 1980s as an anti-Semite. Now we can add the FTP movement, which is expletive the police, to this list as Black Lives Matter continues to demand sensitivity to the unique experiences of black people in their account in their encounters with the police. US Jews have the right to demand not to have our lives be threatened by a liberation movement with whose ideals we naturally empathise. So I think that's a very interesting article. Peter, um, I might have the video here before I hand back to you because it says uh, shock video, and this is from the shivaworld.com. So we'll see if it's there, and if it is, we'll have a go at playing it. Um, But I've not tested this out, so um, I can't say if it's going to work. Uh, here we are, let's see. It's a minute long, so let's see what... what uh... You know, I'm a leader of this FTP movement. It means a lot of things. It can mean free the people. It can mean for the people. It could also mean fire to property. You know, and that's very possible. Tonight I'm leading a demonstration from Barclay Center at 6 p.m. to City Hall. And that's the first stop. And we're hoping de Blasio and Cuomo come out and talk to us and give the youth some direction. But if they don't, the next stop is the Diamond District. And gasoline, thanks to Trump, is awfully cheap. Uh, those are outrageous words to say basically that a person was uh, basically suggesting 
that they plan to uh, go to uh, the Diamond District, which is run basically by uh, Orthodox uh, Jews here in New York City. Certainly hope uh, that is not the case, and we do not endorse or, uh, uh, in fact, we condemn uh, that type of language uh, here on the Fox News Channel. Someone saying that uh, certainly should be called out in terms of uh, any type of uh, potential threat of any sort that we just heard live from uh, someone who's interviewed here uh, on this channel. Okay, so that seemed to come out um, well, anyway, uh, volume-wise. Uh, Peter, over to you for your comments. Well, there were so many thousands of businesses looted and there was so much damage, billions of dollars worth of damage during the BLM riots, uh, the burn, loot, murder, or Baal, Lucifer, and Moloch movement uh, back in 2020. And uh, many of these same people were con were condoning it, were commending it, were being very positive, were um, encouraging it. And uh, interesting how it was a, a threat uh, to uh, COVID if you attend a Trump rally, but it wasn't a problem if rioters weren't wearing masks. Uh, so you had this bizarre double standards uh, where they were um, standing back and telling the police to stand back and prosecutors refusing to prosecute and uh, just outrageous that so much damage could be done when they're talking about the rule of law and nobody is above the law uh, when it comes to raiding a, a former president and a future presidential candidate uh, home. Uh, the rule of law must be applied, but it doesn't seem to apply when you've got mobs destroying whole suburbs, whole shopping malls, vast amounts of business, causing billions of dollars worth of damage, even burning down police stations, I mean, for goodness sakes. And uh, uh, that that didn't seem to get the kind of response that the moment somebody said going to the Diamond District, we cannot condone violence and damage of property. And so um, that's not very even-handed. I would have thought it should be easy enough. We condemn all violence. We condemn all riots. We condemn all looting. Uh, that would be more appropriate. But the selective outrage does seem intriguing, doesn't it, Andrew? It does. And as you, as you said, I mean, when we go down this line, I mean, the guy was making threats. We'll make no bones about it. But we've had situations uh, across not just America, but across the world where these Black Lives Matters turned into a loot burn fest where many people were, were uh, obviously stolen from, many people were injured, and many people were even killed. But we don't seem to hear many arrests coming out of these. And as you said yourself, Peter, that these were condoned while people were being locked up under so-called COVID restrictions. You remember the infamous um, exchange between Anthony Fauci and, uh, you know, someone on, I believe, a Senate committee asking him, you know, is it acceptable to have these BLM protests uh, while, you know, we've got COVID lockdowns? And, and he basically wouldn't say it wasn't. Um, but the point with this guy is he made it clear, and I'm going to go back, because what I'm going to do, folks, is I'm going to include two links, because I read, I should have found the video, shouldn't I, let's be honest, before I read the article, because I basically read um, <laughs> everything that this guy just said to you on the video I played, and uh, he said basically several times as well. Um, but essentially, um, they are different, so I'll include both. But what he said um, is, he said, here we are. Today I'm leading a demonstration 
from Barclays Centre at 6pm to City Hall and that's the first stop and we're hoping de Blasio and Cuomo come out and talk to us and give the youth some direction. But if they don't, the next stop is the Diamond District. So, but if they don't, then the next stop is the Diamond (laughs) District. So he's basically saying if people, if de Blasio and Cuomo come out at the demonstration at 6pm in City Hall and give the youth some direction, then he won't go to the Diamond District. But nevertheless, he was still arrested. And I've never heard from the guy since. Um, And according to the article that there's not a lot in it you see the article with the video that's why i'm going to put most so put both but it actually um starts off a man identifying himself as ace burns delivered an ominous threat to orthodox jewish new yorkers so obviously the term mm. ace burns when he's talking about you know when you hear about he's talking about using gasoline and stuff that's probably some you know, pseudonym he's given himself, Ace Burns, so it's probably not his real name. But yeah. I'd never heard um, uh, uh, what happened to this guy subsequently. I mean, the story for me always ended with this guy being arrested. So, folks, if any of you know the outcome of this, and it's something that I will certainly cover because it'd be interesting to see, you know, we're up to the arrest stage. Was he charged? Was he released without charge? Did he go to jail? We don't know. We, the, the story ends here. So if you're able to find out anything for us, then please email it over to Andrew Carrington Hitchcock at hotmail.com and Peter will also be giving you his email address at the end of the show. So um, let me just have a look at the clock. We've got three or four minutes left. Peter, anything else that you'd like to add? Yes, um, it, it's interesting that diamonds uh, are untouchable so for example in in my country in fact not just my country in the whole southern hemisphere all diamonds belong to de beers uh, and uh, run by oppenheim and co so uh, interesting you may find a diamond on your farm you may find a diamond while scuba diving off the coast of south africa especially off the coast of the orange river where quite a lot are found and uh, every diamond found in south africa or namibia or botswana or the Congo, or Zambia, or Zimbabwe, it belongs to the beers, even if it was on your farm and you found it, or you found it scuba diving in a river or in the ocean. Isn't it interesting how a company can have a complete monopoly of owning of a natural mineral? Uh, but uh, that's the way it is. Every uncut diamond belongs to the beers, and we've got a very serious um, uh, group uh, in the police, uh, the Ill- illegal diamond buying IDB. A task force, which is about the only task force left. They closed down the vice squad and so on. That's not so important. But they keep this. And it doesn't matter who the government is. Uh, under the old government, the new government, it seems that diamonds always belong to the beers, if they're uncut diamonds. So um, intriguing, double standards. We need the truth. You need to have the truth to be able to set you free. You cannot have any free society or any democracy or any meaningful elections if you don't have free access to the truth, which means there must be freedom of speech. And you cannot have threats, whether by governments or by mobs or by religions or anyone against somebody, whether it's somebody stabbing an author for an opinion he gave or whether it is defaming him uh, in the media or deplatforming the person or prosecuting the person. All of these are threats to freedom in general. And so we have to have freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of movement, freedom of the press. It's absolutely vital for a free society. You cannot have free elections if you don't have free access to what's going on. As we saw in the 2020 elections, there was a lot of fraud. But one of the frauds was controlling the media to put a 
a stop on the scandals of the Biden uh, family and Hunter Biden and, and the collusion with the Chinese Communist Party and all that, which would have obviously massively affected the results of the of the election. So when you don't have free access to information or when you intimidate the people who try to investigate and give the other side, uh, the politically incorrect side, then what you have is manipulation and propaganda and George Orwell 1984 Newspeak. So if people want to uh, contact me, my email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. Our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. And I'd like to hear from you. And you can also find me on social media. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And uh, folks, in the few seconds that we have left, I'm just going to reiterate what Peter said here about, um, you know, the influence of the Tabeers family. We've heard this clip here that the Diamond District was protected by the authorities. And I mentioned to you yesterday how Liz Truss is trying to shield the Jewish community from the woke agenda, which she claims is anti-Semitic, whilst the Conservative government did nothing to um, support Muslims who protested the LGBT, uh, as it was then, because uh, I read the article from 2000, and 19 they hadn't added the Q on by at that point uh, they were protesting outside schools and they were called buzz bullies and um, what have you by the daily mail there's a link to that in the post for this show so you know as um i think it was animal farm where some people are more equal than others uh, some people get more protection from governments than others and i think it's important that we witness when we witness that pattern that we report that pattern because if we are all equal as we are repeatedly told then why are some people people's protection prioritized above the protection of others so that being said i want to thank peter so much for joining us today on a show entitled the real story of threats to authors who dare to challenge the politically correct narrative i want to thank all of you for listening peter and i'll be back with you at the same time next week and until then folks have a wonderful day and bye for now